0: Acts 15, Father your word is magnificent Lord, your word tells us that it is exalted above all your name, so vital is it to you, so important and we just ask Lord that we might be able to take in and soak up your word. That we might understand the reasons why certain things are included in your word, Father. Why you tell us what you tell us. And Lord, that these things would be more than study, but would be life-changing. We pray truly for an alteration in our hearts and in our minds and in the way that we think and act and live. And we pray, Father, this morning that as we, Father, wade into seas of conflict, that we will gain the right perspective. Especially as a body of believers here, there is immediate application for us as a church fellowship, as much as there is for the larger church. May we see it, understand it, and live by the principles, Lord, that you draw out of your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15 verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated one from another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In 1907, the blind but prolific hymn writer Fanny Crosby penned a song that she simply entitled, Hold Fast. It begins, O sailor on a treacherous sea. Though rent thy every sail may be, though all thy earthly hopes are past, and thou art clinging to the mast, hold fast a moment more. Behold, a light upon the shore. Thou scarce a beam thine eye can see thy savior comes to rescue thee. One of the guarantees, one of the realities of following Jesus is that you are not promised smooth sailing. As a matter of fact, when you sign up for Jesus, when you enter into a relationship with Him, you are almost guaranteed that there will be rough and treacherous seas ahead, that Jesus will not only lead you through them, but will lead us sometimes to them. Most of us come to expect that. It doesn't take long before you start to realize that Life is life whether you follow Jesus or not. The challenges are going to come. That great waves are going to crash against the bow of our ship. That it is ours to trust Him and to believe in Him and to follow Him regardless of the storms. And so we expect the storms to come except when the storms rip through the chapels and cathedrals and sanctuaries of the church. Bring it on outside. Let the storm rage. I even said in my head this morning as I lay in bed listening to the winds blow and the rains pour, I thought, let it pour. I love it on the outside. But when it's on the inside, when the storms are internal, that's a completely different thing. One of the reasons I love the Word of God is unlike so many biographies of famous personalities, the Bible tells it like it is. It's incredible. You can pick up a biography and in the stores read about someone and they almost sound angelic or heavenly. Not so the people on the pages of Scripture. With very few exceptions, point out any patriarch, point out any apostle, and I can tell you something negative. We can, we can point out some issue that happened or occurred, some mess that they got themselves into. It is a very human book. It's amazing to me because the only glory belongs to Jesus. If you read and look at the men and women of Scripture, there's not much here to glorify them except what they do in the name of the Lord. And that glory goes to the Lord. And so while the history of the church is amazing and exciting and even supernatural, it is also a history of imperfect, emotional, and sometimes boneheaded people. And the book of Acts is replete with it. That's why I tend to call it the book of the Acts of the Spirit working through the church rather than the Acts of the Apostles. Because the Acts of the Apostles are not always pretty. Back in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit had said, Separate for me Barnabas and Saul. And now we see them separate. In harsh and strong disagreement. The the word in verse 39, look at it. It says there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. The word sharp disagreement, it's one word in the Greek we even have an English equivalent. In the Greek it's paroxymos. Paroxysm. In the English, we call it a paroxysm, and a paroxysm physically is defined as a fit or an attack of convulsions. Emotionally, a paroxysm is a sudden outburst or intense argument. This sharp disagreement is an explosive debate. Is a harsh dispute. This was no quiet conversation between these two men who were called by the Holy Spirit as missionaries for the church. Paul. Paul, that that man called out of his strict Jewish lifestyle who became a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. If there were any two men well suited to go together on mission for the Lord, it was these two men. And yet, they explode in a conflict that is so intense they can no longer do ministry together. And that's right here in Scripture. This sharp disagreement, this paroxysm, not unlike the storms that suddenly explode on the Mediterranean. And yet they're not even on the Mediterranean, they're on the shoreline. And this storm ends sadly, wistfully, as Barnabas takes Mark and sails off to Cyprus without Paul. The fellowship is broken. The dynamic duo is deceased. These two will no longer do ministry together. Well, let's get this all right out on the table. Disagreements happen in the church. Harsh disagreements. In this fellowship, disagreements happen all the time. Biblically speaking, the twelve argued constantly. Arguing over who was the greatest. I'm thankful we haven't had that kind of an argument here. The early church ran into strife again and again. We see Acts chapter 6, strife over the widow's food distribution. Come on. Strife in Acts chapter 15 over whether or not the Gentiles should be required to be circumcised. Really? The church of 2,000 years has known much by way of strife. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 18, and says, When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Paul assumes, expects factions and divisions within the church. But here's the thing to know. It's not a church issue. In fact, it is what I would call the human contention. <laughs> the human condition is the human conti- contention. I think, therefore, I argue. Where there's a will, there's a won't. <laughs> to agree or not to agree, that is the question. And you get any two people in a room together and there will be disagreement. There will be debate. You can be Christian. You can be non-Christian. doesn't make any difference. Human beings argue. We disagree. Some of you, even from time to time, disagree with me. It's shocking, but it's true. (laughs) But let me give a warning here before we go any further. If there's one thing the Lord hates... It's the spreading of contention among His people. He hates it. There are an awful lot of sins that we have committed, failures that we have all done. This is the one you don't want to have any part of. Spreading contention. Spreading strife. Proverbs 6.16 We've talked about this many times. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Which means number seven is worse than all the prior six. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the big kahuna, number seven, the one who spreads strife among brothers. God can't stand it. He hates it. He despises dissension that is spread around. In fact, you could say to God, the spreading of strife is like smearing rancid curdled butter over burnt toast. He won't stomach it. He will not receive it. He will not accept it. But there's a difference, get this, between strife and spreading strife. There is a difference between disagreement and disunity. We can disagree. We can agree to disagree. It's when we start to spread that, when we start to gang up, when we start to try and and pull people over to our side to prove our rightness, that's where the problem comes, and God hates it. Now the good news in the story before us this morning is we don't see that in the church in Antioch. Oh, We see an explosive argument between Barnabas and Paul, but we do not see a church divided. We do not see a church taking up sides. In fact, we hear nothing about the church in Antioch being drawn and quartered into this debate. In spite of the paroxysm between these two men, the church keeps sailing on, even through contentious seas, so we see it can be done. So why then does the Spirit, through Luke, record this conflict for us? And why take the timeline of this morning, I wanted to pause and point out what I believe are some good coordinates here for mapping our way through treacherous seas of strife. Knowing that in any church fellowship, including this one, strife has come, strife is and strife will come. That we sail through that stuff from time to time. How do we navigate it? Well, here are some coordinates for you. First of all, note this in the story. That Paul had the heart of an evangelist. He had the heart of an evangelist. Look back at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, when Paul and Barnabas were first sent out, the Holy Spirit sent them out. The Spirit said, separate for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the task that I have before them. And he sent them out. Here, the Spirit's not asking them to go. Paul just wants to doesn't mean he's wrong to, it just means his heart is that of an evangelist. He wants to go back, he wants to see how the people are doing, how they're established, how the churches are growing. He wants to increase the ministry. He had the heart of evangelists. These folks mattered more to Paul than his own life. In fact, from the conversion of Paul forward, he lived his life for the church. He would say on one occasion, 2 Corinthians 11.28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He loved the churches. He loved the people. He had a heart to see the lost, saved. That was Paul. That's a good coordinate on the map to get through treacherous times is the heart of an evangelist. How many believers will enter into the kingdom because of the work of Paul. I don't even think we can count them. How many churches were established by Paul just in his missionary journeys? Now, if you count them up, if you look through the book of Acts, and if you read up in the letters of Paul, you can put together about 14. Some say, by implication, there's at least 20 Others say there are many, many more that are not even listed in Scripture that we don't even know about. But Paul was an evangelist. Paul was a church planter. A guy by the name of Neil Cole on churchplanting.com said the following, Paul not only left numerous church plants, he left the DNA of a movement that would eventually spread to the extent that even the Roman Empire itself would surrender to Christianity. Whether or not that was a good thing, we can discuss another time. But history was changed, he writes, in dramatic fashion through one man's obedience. How much of an impact can one person have? Ask Paul. How much of an impact can you have, men, women, in your life? Just one person. I'm just one person. What can I do? For the kingdom. How can I change the world in the name of Jesus? I'm just one guy. Ask Paul. All Paul said was, let's go visit the brethren. Let's go back and see what we started. Let's follow up a bit. The heart of an evangelist. I think about all those churches, all those people that were introduced to Jesus because of the preaching and the planting of Paul Galatia, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus Philippi, Colossae and yes even Rome and what's interesting is we look at those, we hear those words those names of those cities and we think doctrinal letters when we say Philippians we think of the letter to the Philippians and we turn there first Thessalonians my friends these were people these were people whose lives were changed by the Gospel. People who, to Paul, these were people to establish in Jesus Christ. These were not doctrinal letters to study. And so Paul's heart was to see them not just saved, but saved and established. Which again is the value of discipleship. By the way, whose responsibility is discipleship? Is it the churches? No, ours. It is ours. It is the churches in that we are the church. But it is not the local church organization that is responsible for the discipleship of people. If you bring someone to Jesus, stick with them. Go back and see them. Follow up on them. Make sure they are established in the Lord. That's discipleship. And there are all kinds of methods and plans and ways of doing discipleship, but the best way is stay with them. Walk with them in relationship. Pray with them. Visit them and see them established. Paul would write in Romans chapter one verse 11, "I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established." He wrote to the church in Thessalonica, first Thessalonians 3:12. "May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts." without blame, in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. To the church of Colossae, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, "...continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Paul's calling, the heart of an evangelist, a minister of the hope of the Gospel to establish people in Jesus Christ. And that is very much a part of the navigational work of the church. It's why we keep coming back every week. If you ever wonder that, you're in the car driving here on a Sunday morning wondering, why am I doing this? Let me just tell you that you might be established in the Lord. Established in His Word. Strengthened in your walk and in your faith. And that you might establish others. And that's why Paul wanted to go back. These fledgling churches, they weighed on his heart. He thought about them constantly. They consumed his prayers, his ministry, his very life. What an example. Can can you say that? Can you say that your church family consumes your thoughts? That brothers and sisters in the Lord consume your prayers? That they weigh on you hour to hour, day to day. They did with Paul. And as a matter of fact, this idea of evangelism and establishment, it is in the DNA. If we are a people truly changed by Jesus Christ, if we are that new breed of people that we began talking about as we entered into the the book of Acts... This new breed is a new DNA and it's a DNA that causes us to have eyes fixed on others, loving others, seeing others into the kingdom. Walking together in the name of Jesus. For as Jesus said, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Paul's heart for the lost was actually part of the reason he disagreed so vehemently with Barnabas. Paul's concern for the establishment of the churches was part of his brush-up with Barnabas, part of his refusal to take along this flake, John Mark. You see, for Paul, it had far more to do with other people than it did with himself. He wasn't fighting for himself, I don't believe. I think he was fighting for the churches and saying, I don't want to take along someone who's going to distract from the mission at hand. But the thing is, we can say the same for Barnabas. That it wasn't about himself, it was about others or other. That he had a true concern for John Mark. Verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. He wanted to, the word tells us. But it's a stronger word than that in the Greek. He wanted to take John. No, he bulomai is the word. Bulomai, which means he was determined to take Mark. He didn't just want to. He just wanted to. And Paul said, no, it's not going to happen. Barnabas would have been like, oh, okay. But he was determined to bring him along. He was not about to budge. Why is that? Well, John Mark was his nephew or cousin. We're not sure which one, but related to him. So obviously he had an affinity for John Mark. But it's more than that. For you see, as much as Paul was an evangelist, Barnabas was an encourager. It was in his makeup. He had the heart of encouragement. And note this, part of the discord between these two brothers was not only in their natures, it was in their giftings from the Lord. Paul is a gifted evangelist. So he's functioning from the position of evangelism. Barnabas is a gifted encourager. Functioning from the heart of encouragement. No wonder he would want to bring along John Mark. No wonder he would want to give him an opportunity. So you have conflict between the evangelist and the encourager, who are not seeing eye to eye, but both, both are correct in their attitudes. And yet they disagree. Acts four thirty-six tells us the apostles gave Joseph the name Bar Nabas. Bar-nabas, son of encouragement. His nickname. They called him Barnabas because that was his natural and spiritual gift set. And note that it is a spiritual gift. I want to try and point these out as much as I can as we're going through Acts. Moments where we see a spiritual gift actually at work. And in Barnabas we see one. That word encouragement in the Greek, it's paraklesis. And it's the same word that is defined among the spiritual gifts as exhortation. Encouragement, paraklesis, exhortation. It's listed among the spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. You might make a mental note of this or jot it down. Then Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and then down in verse 8 he says, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly, he who exhorts in his exhortation, in his paraklesis. But the word paraklesis is the same word used for Barnabas in Acts 4. He is the son of encouragement, the son of exhortation. And that's instructed for us. Listen. Exhortation, encouragement, the gift of encouragement, is more than someone who gives a kind word. The gift of encouragement is a vital gift in the church because exhortation is a gift that motivates. It's a gift that that pushes forward, that moves, that that does encourage, but encourages in a motivating way. It's not like, hey, buck up, little dude. It's, John Mark, you got to get back on the horse. Let's go. It's time to go back on the mission. Let's move. A wonderful example of this is seen in the wife of Martin Luther. Some of you may know Martin Luther had great bouts of depression throughout his life. He was a very emotional man. And he could go very dark very easily. And on a particularly dark day, he sat in his study, moping, in a foul mood. His wife comes to the study door, her name Catherine von Bora, Catherine von Bora, who was a former nun, she comes to the door and knocks on his study and rouses him from his stupor, from his depression. He slowly gets up, moves around his desk, comes and opens the door, and there stands his wife, dressed all in black from head to toe. Martin Luther says, "Well, what happened? Why are you dressed that way?" She said, "Well, you've been acting as though God were dead, so I thought I would dress for his funeral." <laughs> And she spun on her heels and walked away, leaving Martin Luther to chuckle to himself and realize what he was doing. Needless to say, his mood vastly improved after that, on that day. Exhortation. Barnabas, the son of exhortation, had likely already been working on John Mark. I don't know this for sure, but he sure is ready to call on John Mark the second Paul says it's time to go. No doubt Barnabas has been having conversation with him and now sees this as the golden opportunity to get this young buck back in the saddle of the Gospel. But Paul was a wall. Diametrically opposed. He was not going to see this happen. No way. Remember what happened the first time around? Acts chapter 13, verse 13 says, Paul and his companions set out from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, if you stop right there, if you didn't hear the rest of the story, you might think, oh, well, there must have been some issue back home. Maybe mom was sick and and John needed to go tend to her. Maybe there was something in the Jerusalem council where they needed to call on young John Mark and bring him back. Or maybe he was just going to bring information about how they were doing so far on the mission. The reality is that John made it to two seaports before bailing out and sailing back home to Mama and I don't know apple knish or whatever she made. Why he left, we can only really speculate. We know he departed. Was it a problem of expectations? Was it that man? This is not. This is not what I thought I was signing up for. Some say it was a matter of maturity, that John Mark just wasn't ready himself for the kind of missionary storms that they already were facing as they crossed the island of Cyprus that first time. And some say Johnny was just a mama's boy. Just had to run home to mama, just couldn't take it. Whatever the reason, his leaving burned Paul. And we finally discover that here. To the point that Paul is not willing to take this young man back on a mission again. No, he had his chance. He's off the team. Look at verse 38. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Deserted them. That's a different word. Acts 13 verse 3 says John Mark departed. He left. Here, Paul uses a harsher word. The word is aphistemi. Aphistomai, deserted. And it's a word that means to fall away, to be faithless, to bail. In fact, the word Ephistemi is often used along with apostasia to describe apostasy in the scriptures. Jesus said in Luke 8 verse 13, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation, they apistamide. They fall away. They desert. And that's the same word Paul now uses for John Mark. Now, I'm not saying that John Mark fell away. In fact, I think biblically we can prove that he did not. However, he was a bit faithless in his youth. He did bail out. And it truly upset Paul deep in his heart. Faithfulness was a high value to Paul. And by the way, let me just say that faithfulness is a high value for the church. Faithfulness does matter on the mission. And Jesus taught, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. That's Luke 16, verse 10. And note the contrast. Jesus contrasts faithfulness with unrighteousness. That is, to be unfaithful is to be unrighteous. Faithfulness matters on the mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, It is required of of stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness matters. Paul had a passion for the mission. I'm giving you coordinates here. If you haven't caught those, Paul had had a heart for evangelism. And Barnabas, he had a heart for exhortation or encouragement. Both valuable, both points, coordinates on the map. But thirdly, Paul had a passion for the mission. The mission mattered so much to Paul, and faithfulness matters on the mission. Jesus said in Mark 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. But Jesus also said in Luke 18, verse 8, When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? The question begs a no. The question states, when the Son of Man truly comes, when Jesus returns in this glorious second coming of Jesus, that He will not find faith on the earth. That that, by that point, the church having been caught up, raptured at least seven years prior, that by that point, all of those who come to faith in Jesus during that time of tribulation will have been executed? There will be a handful of those. Israel in the wilderness protected, saved. But will Jesus come and find faith among the rest of mankind? No, He will not. And I think we need to pause and consider the seriousness of that. That if you disagree with Paul being all staunch against giving John Mark a second chance, understand the importance of faithfulness. I struggle with this, gang. i got to tell you, in church, in my own life, both as a pastor and just as a person, I struggle with the issue, the balance between faithfulness to what God has called us to and grace. Mercy to give second chances, again, both to myself but also to others. There are times in my heart where I look at someone and I think, they're just not being faithful here. Times when I look in the mirror and I think, why would you ever call me to this, Jesus? And then other times where I say, oh, we've got to give an opportunity, got to give a second chance, got to bring them along, come on. And I think the Lord has given me grace. Second chance after second chance after second chance. And I guess the biggest struggle for me is that in all of the, in the church over the last 2,000 years, we come to a point in our culture where faithfulness is not a high value anymore. Grace is a high value. Second chance is forgiveness. Whatever. Do whatever you want. Just show up. You're good to go. Once a year, show up. You're fine. Ultimately, some would say God's just going to save everybody anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And I think what's happened to faithfulness? We have been called to be faithful. Will we fail? Yes, we will. But we have been called to be faithful people. It matters on the mission. To the point, again, where Paul is not willing to risk the mission on a runaway. I get that. The kingdom calls for servants, not serve-me's. And I saw a lot of them last night, by the way. Well, Rick, but that was just a fall festival. There wasn't really anything spiritual. It was spiritual fellowship. It was spiritual serving. It was people loving each other. And I so love to see that in the church. But Barnabas takes a different tack than Paul does. He sharply disagrees. Here's that paroxysm. You can almost hear Barnabas saying, how can you train someone up in faithfulness if you don't give them a second chance to learn how to be faithful? Come on, Paul. I know Mark Baal, but give him a chance. How can the servee become the servant without the opportunity to serve? Verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas or Silvanus And left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Put it all together. Again, this was no tacit disagreement. Oh, you don't think he should go? Well, I kind of think he should. Okay. Well, you take him and you go that way and we'll take, and I'll go that way and we'll just meet up around the horn. That's not what happened. It was a heated exchange. It was more like this. Hey, Barnabas, Paul says. Let's go back. Let's go back and check on our brothers and sisters, the churches in Asia. Let's go encourage them. Encourage? Barnabas hears, oh yeah, I'm in. Great, Paul, I'm going to go get John Mark. (laughs) Oh, I don't think so. He jumped ship on us last time. Barnabas says, "Uh, I do think so. He's going. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Uh, No, he's not. Doesn't he deserve a second chance? After all, Paul, I gave you one. Remember, it was Barnabas who went and got Paul. Twice. The first time when the church in in Jerusalem would not accept him, Barnabas grabs hold of Paul and brings Paul before the apostles and says, Look, I stake my life on this guy. He's a good guy. He's with us. Give him a chance. It was Barnabas who coming up to Antioch saw the explosion of the gospel and said, I got to go get Paul in on this and swings around to Tarsus and brings him back into the ministry. Barnabas gave Paul second chances and now all he's asking Paul to do is give Mark a second chance and BOOM! Storm on the Mediterranean coast. And these two brothers go at it. So whose side would you take? I think that's kind of telling. In fact, one way to determine if you're an evangelist or an exhorter is your reaction to the story. Evangelists like myself would tend to say, Paul was right. John blew it. It's time to get back to work and he wasn't with us the first time. But the encourager, the exhorter would say, oh, come on. Give him a shot. He deserves a second chance. And so we see this division. Who's right? Who's wrong? And here's the thing. Neither one. Paul wasn't wrong in his passion for evangelism, for the mission, for what he saw needed to be done. And Barnabas was not wrong in his heart for John Mark and for seeing this young man discipled and raised up. The evangelist and the encourager saw the mission differently. And what's amazing to me about this story is it reminds me that God reserves the right to utilize people who disagree with me. I mean, really? Lord... And I have seen over the years, and perhaps you have too, people you have worked alongside with in ministry, and then there's a clash. There's a difference of opinion. Not of doctrine, but of opinion. And one person goes one way, one person goes another way. And both are thinking, how could he think that? How could she do that? Obviously I'm right and they're wrong. When the truth is, gang, God alone is right. Because God alone is. Is righteous. You realize how many times we face decisions corporately and personally, but let me speak strictly of the church. How often we face decisions in this church body or have faced decisions where there is not a right or wrong answer, there's just an answer. There are options laid out before us. And some would choose this option. And others would choose that option. And when some choose this option, those who would choose that option are not thrilled with this option. Where they're all just options. They're different approaches, different ways to do ministry. Let us stop when we find ourselves disagreeing and start by remembering first and foremost, God is righteous. We may not be wrong, but He alone is right. Psalm 71.16 says, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Revelation 15.4 Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And this tells me and reminds me that if I do anything righteous, it's because of the Holy Spirit working through me. Because God alone is right. When I start to get revved up in disagreement, that truth, the righteousness of God, is like a compass for navigating these coordinates on the map. The coordinate of evangelism, the coordinate of encouragement, the coordinate of the mission, all important coordinates that help us see our way through treacherous seas, but God's righteousness is the compass that shows us the way. Let me quickly show you what I mean by this. I, I confess to you, I reached this point in studying this week. And I kind of stopped. And I thought, well, I could end right there, but that's not nearly long enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I-, I found myself kind of coming up to a wall. I'm like, okay, but, but... But where do I go with this, Lord? What what do we do with this? And you're going to note this because I found it to be the answer every time I get stuck in Bible study. The answer is always Jesus. And I paused and thought, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Jesus up to this point. So let's talk about Jesus. How did, how does Jesus navigate His church through contentious seas? How has He done it? for 2,000 years. Because how He has done it is how He does it. And I think is instructive for us to understand how He will do it in us and through us as a church fellowship here. So, go all the way back to Caesarea Philippi. We've mentioned this several times. Its impact is huge on the church for it's the first time Jesus used the word church. When He said Matthew 16, 18, I will build My church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But when he said that, the church was still months from happening. And in that setting, Peter himself becomes the first contender. We're told in Matthew 16.21 that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This was Peter's paroxysm saying God forbid it Lord this shall never happen to you but Jesus turned and said to Peter get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's and that's the compass that's the compass what are God's interests here what is Jesus concerned with And sometimes if we will even ask that simple question, all the different options begin to fade away and one emerges as the right decision. What is God's interest? This was always on the mind of Christ. In fact, Jesus has the mind of God. Which is how He steers the church. How He navigates our course. What about that time when James and John were all fired up? angry, ticked off at that Samaritan village who would not receive Jesus. And so the sons of thunder were ready to call down Elijah fire from heaven to burn out these Samaritans. What did Jesus do? How did He handle that one? Luke 9.55, He turned and He rebuked them. And He said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then there were all the sharp dis- disagre- disagreements of the Pharisees. Their attacks on Jesus. And He just keeps His cool through everyone. And it seems like there are only three times where we really see Jesus hopping mad. Oh, we'll see Him usher a rebuke. We'll see Him uh, call someone out. But there are three times in His ministry where we see Him almost lose it, though He doesn't lose it. We see Him ticked. The first time, at the beginning of his public ministry, when he comes into the temple, John chapter 2 verse 17, his disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Why? Because Jesus was consumed clearing out the temple, driving out the money changers and the animals and overturning the tables. He was ticked. And then the second time, Mark chapter 3 tells the story of in the synagogue on the Sabbath, When the Pharisees would rather leave a man with a withered hand than see him healed. And we're told, Mark 3 verse 5, After looking around at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And Jesus was angry in that moment. Third time, at the end of His public ministry... We see Jesus contentious again a second time in the temple. He clears the temple before his ministry begins. He clears his temple at the end of his ministry. Mark twenty-one or Matthew twenty-one, Mark eleven, Luke nineteen, as contrasting John chapter two. And so we see Jesus heated. But what is it that we see in Jesus? Listen, this is the key. This is the compass. What is it that we see in Jesus in all of these situations combined when we look at how Jesus navigated His ministry and how He navigates the church? Every paroxysm, every row, every contention, even in the conflict of the cross, Jesus always had first and foremost on His mind the will and purposes of God. And that saw Him through everything. And that sees us through everything. The way to rightly handle all of our contentions, all the storminess that can descend suddenly upon the church is have minds set on the things of God. As Jim so often loves to say, is it a God thing? Is it a good thing? Or is it a God thing? And again, sometimes our options are all just a bunch of good things. So pick one. Doesn't matter. Go west to Cyprus with John Mark. Go north around to Cilicia with Paul. Pick one. Is it a good thing? Or is it a God thing? And Jesus people, if we have forgotten, hear this again. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? 1 Corinthians 2.16. 1 Corinthians 2.16, it's not up there, so write this down. 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. That to me is one of the most profound verses in all Scripture. Christ has the mind of God, but we have the mind of Christ. Jesus' heart is set on the things of God, and yet we have the heart of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We can tap into His thought processes. We can function by His desire, by His will, by His means and methods. We have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Learn it. Know it. Live it. Romans 8.6 For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and what? Anyone know? Peace. You want calm in the contentions? You have a mindset on the Spirit, for there is life and peace. And Paul writes to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's the key. The will and purposes of God. The righteousness of God. The rightness of God. The mind of God. And so the first question that needs to be asked when we have a contentious spark of disagreement is, wait a minute, what does God say? What does the Lord determine here? Barnabas would say, the Lord's telling me to take John Mark. Paul would say, well, the Lord's telling me no. Hmm. Hmm. So things get heated between the two men. Welcome to the real world. But listen, did Paul or Barnabas, either one, quit the ministry? Did either one leave the church? Or worse, try to divide the church to their side? Did they blow off the mission? No. Because, listen, because both men had the right mindset. Both men were right. Both men had the compass. For Paul the evangelist, it was the mission God called him to. For Barnabas the encourager, it was the man, John Mark, that God called him to. And both were following Jesus, which is why they ultimately separated. (laughs) God can even use our disagreements. And what ends up happening is now the church is doubly blessed. Because the two evangelists the two evangelists, and the two exhorters, because they both have both gifts, go two different directions. Sometimes that needs to happen. I have been in that situation. Oh, I could tell you a long story about back when the bridge began, I was serving at a church in Anacortes, Fidalgo Community Church with my brother Ron. And I saw clearly at that time it was time for me to leave. It's not because I didn't love my brother. It's not because I didn't love working with my brother, that he didn't matter to me. Of course he did. But I kept thinking, we can do so much more damage in this area. If Ron does damage here, and I go do damage over there, we can double the damage. I'm speaking euphemistically, but I mean, we can double the work of the kingdom in two locations rather than just in one. That truly was my heart. And at first, my brother looked at that and said, you're just going to hurt us. You're going to hurt what God's doing here. I'm like, well, I'm not taking John Mark with me. (laughs) And I went one way. And Ron stayed there. And today, 12 years later, there are two churches where there was one. The number of people reached for the gospel is vastly more than it would have been had I just stayed there. Was there contention between my brother and I, a sharp paroxysm? You bet there was. And yet, I can tell you now, a decade later, he's my best friend in the world. Ron and I see each other all the time. We love each other. We support each other's ministries. We pray for each other. God reconciled. It didn't take long, but reconciled what became a difference, a dispute between us. I went one way. Ron went the other. And it was like, what do we do here? And I struggled with that for a long, long time. And then I came to Acts chapter 15, verse 36 and went, so I'm not alone. So God marvelously can even use our disputes and our disagreements to further the Gospel. Understand that both the mission and John Mark both mattered to God. Both were important to the Lord. And in spite of the differences, he utilized both men. His spirit navigates Barnabas west to Cyprus. Paul again north through Syria and Cilicia in the ever-expanding Gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but Rick, how does the story end with Paul and Barnabas? Well, we don't really know. But we can make some guesses. We know that at least at this point, Barnabas takes Mark and sails off to Cyprus and out of the book of Acts. This is the last we'll see of Barnabas. Paul will reference Barnabas five times in his letters. One time that seems to be with some affinity. Another time in the midst of a rebuke. And then another time he mentions Barnabas when he's talking about getting hold of John Mark and that's I think the best part of this is that Mark eventually became a faithful member of Paul's team. So praise the Lord, thank God, that Barnabas did not give up on the lad. Iron sharpens iron, right? Proverbs 27.17 Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Sparks may fly, but brothers and sisters, if we have the mind of Christ, if our mindset is spiritual, if it's heavenly, if it's focused on the lost, the saved, and the mission before us, even our sparks can ignite and fuel faith in others. If we will keep our minds focused on Jesus. Look at how the story ends. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, verse 40. But Paul chose Silas. We'll get to know Silas in coming pages here. And he left being, note this, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I like that. Two outcomes in spite of all this contention. The grace of the Lord and the strengthening of the church. The grace of the Lord and the strengthening of the churches. Are you committed to the grace of the Lord? And are you committed to the strengthening of the church? The point of the whole story is not the rightness or wrongness of man. It is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why I believe the Spirit chose to include this story in Scripture. He reminds us that even in spite of our disagreements, God's mission will not fail. Churches divide. The mission goes on. Churches fall apart and Christians are scattered. The mission goes on. Pastors contend. The mission goes on. Brothers divide. The mission goes on. And what I would leave you with this morning is simply this. If you are in dispute, even right now, hold fast a moment more. Behold A light upon the shore, though scarce a beam thy eye can see, thy Savior comes to rescue thee. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come out of all this not seeking sermonettes on uh, little principles for life. We come out of this seeking the glory of Jesus. We come out of this recognizing. Your righteousness, even when we contend. Your righteousness against our humanity. And Lord Jesus, I pray for our fellowship this morning, I pray that we would have both the Pauls and the Barnabases working hand in hand, because we need the evangelists, Lord, and we need the encouragers. We need both. And You have placed every member in the body just so that we will function together, that we will grow up together. Help us to be willing to see the differences in how You have gifted us. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in those differences. I pray, Father, for unity in this fellowship as much as we pray for the continuance of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we offer this prayer. Amen.